Welcome, everybody, to the Catch Curve podcast on uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I'm really honored today to have an incredible guest joining us um, in Ann Mosnes. She's a former Alaska fisherwoman, a former president of the Women's Maritime Association, a food and community policy fellow with the Kellogg Foundation, uh, and has been a well-known and longtime advocate for healthy oceans, watersheds, and food. Um, and we are going to have a great show with her today talking about uh, her experience, especially in the Alaska fisheries. Um, Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I know our listeners are going to enjoy it today. We've got a number of big, big uh, topics that I wanted to tackle with you. Um, First off, why don't I give you the opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself um, beyond uh, the quick intro. In particular, I'd love to hear about uh, uh, the family fishing legacy that you're part of there in Alaska. Like many small businesses, we were multi-generational. My son carries on. Uh, I began fishing when my dad needed a, a crew person, and there was no boys in my family three girls. So I went to Alaska sort of as a lark after college. And uh, I had come from uh, working in a a sheltered workshop. uh, And the director actually was later imprisoned for skimming money. I didn't realize that. I just knew that he treated the people badly. So I left that and went to a place called Igigik in Bristol Bay and thought it was just great wildness, great fun. All the risks were direct. There wasn't anything covert going on that I could see. We pulled the net by hand. It, it was just, it was a high adventure. So I actually continued in that to work for uh, more than two decades, almost three. And during that time, uh, more women came into fisheries. And uh, I worked to ensure that the maritime workplace would be safer uh, by working to get a law passed Congress that required reporting of assault in the annual report that the Coast Guard would make to Congress every year. So women were going to maritime academies and now are pretty um, well-received in fisheries and maritime. It wasn't always that case. So that was the work of decades ago. Then I became more involved in fisheries politics And I've been doing that both uh, as a commercial harvester, as a fisherwoman, and then I began working for several research institutes. Actually, I was flying in uh, June of 2001 for an interview with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy in Minnesota. I had been in an auto accident. I was taking my first summer off fishing for many years. And uh, on that morning, my son called me from Alaska to tell me that my boat and 35 others were burning in a fire. So I closed that door of uh, commercial fishing and spent uh, the next uh, several years working for the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, received a a fellowship through the Kellogg Foundation, worked for a variety of other organizations, acquainting them with what small-scale family fisheries were and how similar they are to small-scale family farm businesses. And we have a lot of the same risks, and one of the major ones is the dominance of, of factory farms. And so what I've learned over the decades is that we're seeing the growth of the industrial 
aquaculture uh, operations, which replicate some of the worst uh, problems of uh, industrial farming, but in the marine environment. So I have been working on that now with uh, organizations like the Center for Food Safety, opposing genetic engineering of salmon and uh, putting open cages close to shorelines, close to salmon-bearing rivers. And that's, that's what I'm currently doing, sort of as a citizen activist. Well, it's a, a, an incredible history um, in, the, in the fishing space. Um, I want to certainly come back to aquaculture uh, in a few minutes. Uh, real quick, I have to tell you that I, I was watching you give a speech um, as part of your Kellogg Foundation Fellowship, and I, I, thought, I found it remarkable to hear you say that you had never uh, docked a boat until you owned one, but yet you had the moxie to jump in commercial fishing in, uh, in Alaska. That's, that's really incredible. Tell me about what caused you to choose to get into the industry. Well, as I said, it was high adventure. It was actually legal thrills. Uh, and there's a book that I read, Going to Extremes, and it said that the boundaries within which the normal range of human activity occur have been in Alaska, not just expanded, but removed. And so, you know, states that vast with a small population, uh, you just had to rely on yourself and your own skills and your own bravery and and uh, the community that develops around uh, small boat fisheries when it's pretty risky. So I, I bought a boat uh, for the Copper River fisheries, considered unnavigable waters by the Coast Guard because of the sandbars and the shallowness and Things changed after the big earthquake of 1964, so it was fairly hazardous. And uh, the boat wasn't refurbished enough for me to get any time running it while I was still in Washington State. So I had to consign a barge even to send it to Alaska, and I watched it. I was on a ferry going to Friday Harbor in the San Juans, and I watched my boat going to Alaska, and it arrived in Cordova at about the same time I flew in, and that's where I learned to fish. So uh, it was pretty exciting. And, and as I understand it, I mean, you, I know you faced a lot of tragedy and, and were resilient from it and, and marked your space in the policy world. But as I understand it, your family is still fishing. In fact, maybe your son is out in Bristol Bay catching salmon as we speak. I certainly hope he's catching fish. <laughs> we uh, invested in a house up there so he could run a business in the summertime with a boat yard and he's a welder. And uh, I flew up and was delighted to help him with this new uh, business venture because that'd be a place for his children to come and see how, how dad makes a living. And this is really important. This is the heritage of fishing is that we understand how the money is made. Uh, our children have, have a great uh, pride in being involved in providing this wonderful food for the public so his son at six and daughter at eight i hope we'll have a chance to go up to alaska and uh, see him he's probably in a place called ugashik right now with his net out i hope that's incredible well over your career you have you have literally worked from the water to the fork um in in the seafood supply chain policy world and advocating for sound common sense policy. I'd be interested to hear now that you have this perspective um, all the way through the supply chain, what do you consider to be uh, the biggest opportunities and threats to the fishing industry right now? 
Well, the expansion of corporations, corporate food production, uh, extractive industries, uh, transport of of oil and coal and uh, pipelines and drilling and all the exploitation of uh, of shorelines and uh, watersheds and offshore coastal regions that is expanding and fishing you know the vitality of wild fish throughout the coastal regions really has restricted a lot of this uh, growth by these larger and often dirty industries so as we know the westward expansion in the US occurred because we destroyed the common food resource well we can't really destroy the salmon, which is the equivalent of the buffalo. It's the common food resource for the whole coastal region here. Pacific salmon, you know, the many species throughout the West Coast provide sustenance, provide the uh, health to the ecology, provide a sense of community, you know, provide income. Well, you can't destroy that, but you could destroy the economy based on those abundant fish. And that's why the the expansion of aquaculture has proven to be so harmful to commercial fisheries is that the subsidized fish, because they're raised in pens, they don't pay their full cost of production because the waste, the sewage, just flushes into the marine environment. And so these farm fish were coming into the marketplace unlabeled, cheaper, and the value of wild salmon during those years when I fished. Now, when I fished, one of the interesting things is a generational of the families that are on fisheries. My son came to Alaska when he was 10. My son was 80. Uh, excuse me, my father was 80. My son was 10. 70 years between the oldest and the youngest on our boat for several years. Well, it was during that time that the fish farms were flooding markets with cheaper fish. And we watched the value of our business the license that was valued at over $300,000 in 1995 plummeted to less than $20,000 six years later. So there were suicides that I was aware of. Uh, there was the stresses that happen when people's lives are, are completely overturned, you know, divorce and all the things that occur when people have lost any control over their, their futures. So I actually started working for the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy in 2001 and at, in 2003 initiated the lawsuit that required labeling of colorants in farm salmon so that the public could finally differentiate wild and farm salmon in the marketplace. Because they hadn't done that, there was no requirement that the FDA uh, regulation would be implemented. We had to force it through a class action lawsuit. So now the value of fisheries is returning in those places where there are abundant fish. And Bristol Bay is one of those places where there's no industry that really causes harm to the uh, ecology, the, the water quality. There's between 40 and 60 million sockeye that have been returning in a month's time. It is the greatest gift of wild salmon on the planet. And yet it is at risk now from the plans to put in the deepest open pit mine in North America between the two major river systems that have created this amazing wild salmon population. 
So I fear that we're going to have another deep crisis in fisheries. And the public may not know that this is happening because they see these farm fish in the marketplace. They should have the label, contains artificial colorants. But they see these fish and they think, well, a salmon's a salmon. Except I also trust that the population that is savvy enough to know the health benefits of salmon are also going to want to protect the wild fish that, that are being brought to them by these small boat fisheries. You you touch you started to touch on Pebble Mine, which I, I certainly want to come back to. I, this this question about the role of farm fish, of course, also known as aquaculture, uh, is a critical one, and I think a lot of people in the U.S. and around the globe are figuring out the the dynamics of a relationship between uh, a marketplace that has both of these in, in it, wild and farmed. After Seeing it done poorly uh, and having to fight it, and what an incredible accomplishment, especially on the labeling. Do you see now, as somebody who probably knows more about um, salmon aquaculture in particular than a lot of people in the in the country, do you see there being a coexistence between these two? C- can we make it work to have both farmed fish and wild caught fish uh, successfully? It depends on the method of production, largely. It depends on the species being farmed. I mean, aquaculture was essential to Asian uh, countries. It's existed in Hawaii. It's integrated into the coastal environment. When you get large-scale aquaculture, like the shrimp farms, where they destroy the mangrove forests in order to raise shrimp, and then they move on, you know, and they'll destroy coastlines, which destroys communities and economies. When you have a a fish like the Atlantic salmon that eats small fish, not all wild fish eat small fish. Nature created in abundance sockeye and coho and and, uh, chums, which graze, excuse me, sockeye humpies, which are pink salmon chums, which graze oceans and eat plankton and zooplankton. So they convert the plant material of the oceans into protein. They don't take the small fish, often the juveniles of other species, and create protein, which results in a protein loss. So by raising the carnivorous species in pens, we're plundering the ocean for small fish. And when I was doing research on this some time ago, a third of the ocean harvest were these small fish that were made into fish oil, fish meal, and fed to confined animals and confined ocean fish. So we have to raise the herbivores and the fish that convert plankton and plants into protein. Well, they have, they're they not always easily confined in pens. They graze oceans. So there's one of the problems with aquaculture. If they were raised on shore, so there are voluminous amounts of, of pollution, fish waste, chemicals, pesticides, herbicides, anything that's used, you know, in a, in confined animal production. If they were in pens or containment on shore, then that effluence would not discharge into the marine environment. So that's how aquaculture could exist in a way that doesn't cause harm to other species or water quality. It pays its true costs of sewage disposal, just like every other feedlot on land. And that would be in the marketplace at a 
at a price that really represents the true cost of production. So that would be one way that salmon farming could could exist, that coexist with uh, wild fisheries in the marketplace. But we have regulatory agencies that are not only negligent, they are giving great benefit to the corporate production, the industrial scale aquaculture. Right now, the FDA is approving genetically engineered salmon for production. We don't even know the ramifications of engineering animals, but it has not, this particular first animal has not had the oversight that is necessary for us to be comfortable with it being raised, even in confinement on land. Um, because there is almost always a way through, we've seen it here in Washington, the juveniles can get, can get into the marine environment by going into rivers that are, or water bodies that are close to these uh, production sites. Um, there has to be total confinement. The feed issue is another big one. Now, the soybean growers of the U.S. are heavily promoting soy, genetically injured soy, as a feed for aquaculture fish. These carnivorous species, though, that require protein may not fare as well eating soy and vegetable, you know, commodity crops. So you might have a, a diminishment of the health, the health benefits of eating your salmon, you know, if they're raised on a high omega-6 diet. But those are all things that consumers can sort out, you know, if we give them enough information. But a lot of this stuff is done secretly. Uh, there is not the appropriate oversight. It has taken lawsuits to get uh, even information. Uh, right now, Center for Food Safety and Friends of the Earth have just sued Sea uh, Grant of NOAA for funding uh, ocean aquaculture without the appropriate research on the effects under the Endangered Species Act. So it takes a lot of organizations and citizens to try to keep tabs of what's happening with this industry. Uh, with the uh, feedlot industry of raising fish uh, in confinement. Well, I, I work in fisheries management for a living on the environmental side with the Environmental Defense Fund, and, and I, what you just described is what I come across a lot in, in talking fisheries with people is that it is super complex, um, and you've got to pay attention to the details in both the management and the science. Um, uh, and I think what you said really resonated with me that at the end of the day, this comes down to um, a shift in our country towards large corporate farming, uh, corporate food production. And it brings up another topic I want to ask you about. Um, something that I notice in working with people on the conservation side in fisheries is that the very same people who have a really strong conservation ethic for terrestrial resources that they can see and touch sometimes believe that marine resources are infinite uh, because they they can't see what's under the water. It's out of sight, out of mind. And in some ways, that's translated to some real conservation problems on the water. But I've also noticed this dynamic where as we are in this massive farm to table ethic in the food world in the U S which is encouraging, we seem to reveal revere, uh, small family farmers, but we don't provide the same respect to small family fishing operations. Has that been your experience? Well, it certainly has been. And one of the reasons is the competition for fish. We don't have people who are 
competing uh, with small family farmers, you know, as aggressively as some of the angler groups uh, use legislation and demonization of small fisheries, you know, in order to um, be be beneficiaries of, you know, policies that allows them to, the sports industry to harvest rather than the tribal and commercial fisheries. So we've experienced that here in Washington State. In the 1990s, two initiatives were filed. We thought it was just the recreational fishing industry and, you know, trying to ensure that they could go out and catch their fish from their small boats. We discovered, though, that it was the industrial water users of the Columbia River uh, irrigation, hydropower, navigation interests, as well as large-scale gear manufacturers and boat manufacturers that were actually funding these initiatives. And they were trying to eliminate commercial fishing, and they also wanted to eliminate tribal fisheries because there are some nets used in rivers uh, by the treaty tribes. So when we discovered the big funders were really trying to eliminate commercial fishing and using language that was ugly, you know, killer nets, walls of death, predators, rapists, uh, just uh, targeting families. Well, that's when the environmental groups, Greater Council of Churches, League of Women Voters, State Democrats, a great deal of support was shown to the commercial fishing industry. And twice we defeated these initiatives 60% 60% to 40%. <clears throat> but it was uh, it was very difficult. It took its toll on a lot of us uh, in, ter- in terms of time and money. Well, that's come back around again. Uh, again, attacks on commercial fishing, uh, attacks on you know family fisheries, and the rhetoric generally is is pretty hostile and and inaccurate. We don't equate small-scale gillnets with high-seas gillnets or drift nets. In Bristol Bay, the, the mesh, the meshes are so the depth of the net is like 28 meshes. That's 12 or 13 feet deep. This is and it's attached to the boat. This is not a high-seas drift net. And so, when images are used of big nets with marine animals dying in them. You know, that's a, that's an attack that small-scale farmers don't have to deal with. So the only way we really can educate the public is by being open and transparent, and we were willing to take people out fishing with us during the, the years where we were educating the media and policymakers as well as the public. Um, the gillnet can be the most selective gear properly sized, properly deployed. You know, we have great management. Alaska actually has in its state constitution that sustainability will be its governing uh, mandate for its fisheries. And so, you know, we value that so much. If a fisheries is not considered strong enough to allow a commercial fisheries on it, it doesn't open. And we just know that's an investment in the future. And I've been in some of those fisheries that the fisheries managers have just decided we're just going to, like, keep it closed, either for the full season or keep it closed until these uh, volume of fish come into the spawning grounds. They're counted. They have sonar, but they actually have people standing on towers counting their numbers. You know, and that's what what has ensured the long-term sustainability, particularly of a fishes, fisheries like Bristol Bay, where I believe 40 million sockeye are expected to return this year, 
Last year it was over 60 million. So that's, uh, so those are the differences between family farms who use a lot of images of, you know, a little kid with a dairy cow and, you know, the, the positive images. So when I was working both for the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy and then going to Kellogg-sponsored conferences, I could talk about a family heritage of fishing, the generational skills and values that were passed on and, and how similar that was, you know, how good we became with uh, bailing wire and uh, duct tape and um, worked with nature and had highest respect for nature and even more so uh, could die in a fishing, you know, on a fishing boat, which made it even more important that we shared skills with each generation and and uh, work to protect the fisheries, work for safety regulations. So I, an, another topic that I wanted to, to definitely cover, you know, with your history in the fishery, you're really one of the pioneers that was raising your hand about serious issues at the nexus of gender and fishing. Um, and you're former president of the Women's Maritime Association and played a critical role in, in passing landmark legislation um, can you talk a little bit about the experience as a woman commercial fisherman and what caused you to, to really step in and be a strong advocate in that space? Oh, I think it probably comes back to family. My older sister is handicapped. Uh, my father was a Norwegian immigrant. Uh, I just always grew up probably feeling both that I needed to take care of people who might be disadvantaged or uh, disabled. I also went into fishing feeling excited about the fact that I had very few restraints. I I could uh, pull the net by hand. I navigated at night. I took a lot of classes. I could I took diesel engine teardown classes and uh, maritime law classes, and I, I learned as much as I could. And so I felt competent. And on a fishing boat, when you start using utilizing your hydraulics. The Norwegians would pull things by hand. I would hook it up to my reel, my hydraulics. And my dad and I had some funny conversations over the years where I just tried to use um, the mechanics on the boat rather than just going out and hoisting something on board. But with uh, women in the fisheries, I also wanted to be visible enough so that people would see this as an option, if not fishing other non-traditional work. So I refer to myself as a fisherwoman. I know, or I fishermiz, fisher folk, fisher families. I'm not calling myself a fisherman because I want to be cognizant that the public expects me to know how to differentiate my salmon species. I should differentiate my gender. And so that is one of the reasons why I do refer to myself as this and have interesting conversations with other women who say, well, the term fisherman is so traditional and they dislike the term fisher. But when you write and you're talking about farmers or retailers or processors or distributors, you talk about fishers and it just flows. So I'm in the slow food group uh, locally and then have gone to slow food conferences in Italy and Genoa and across the country. There's slow fish now. Uh, which talks about the value of small fisheries. And and uh, I try to educate them about the fact that 
they need to be aware of these gender terms. And so it's kind of a little discussion I carry on. Um, so that's <laughs> that's why I refer to myself as a fisherwoman, an old salt, but a fisherwoman. What, what was it about the experience of other women in the fishery that caused you to, to get involved at a legislative level um, to, to tackle this, to provide some more protections to, to women on the water? Well, it wasn't entirely women in fisheries that caused me to be so active. In the mid-80s, when I was president of the Women's Maritime Association, we had women telling us of assaults and occasional rapes. And so we asked for, uh, our founder was working for our, our member of Congress, we asked for uh, a GAO uh, assessment of the extent of sexual assaults on board vessels. And they documented eight one was a young woman who had come to my boat in the fishing industry and had not told me that she had been subject to forced sex. But when this investigation was going on, I contacted her and I said, these GAO investigators don't even really know terminology. They don't, they don't know how people get jobs. And you were a college graduate and you were looking for a job. So if you want to just tell them how you got that job on that boat, and I thought she had left that boat just for personality differences. That's when she wrote back a five-page letter and talked about the guilt, shame, and humiliation of having been subjected to forced sex. And I felt terrible that she did not disclose it when she came on board my boat. And I realized that that's women felt they were intruding in, a, in an environment where they weren't wanted. And so that was the motivation, along with these other instances that we were told of women who went on ocean vessels and were out for several months at a time. And I also read a book called Going Overboard about a woman who's thrown off a Gulf of Mexico oil rig supply vessel. And, and they relented and went back and picked her up. And so she wrote the book following that. So... It became necessary to have some awareness of the risks of going to sea and being potentially lost at sea. Uh, so we worked on these issues for half a dozen years or so. Um, Attorney Thane Tienson was a great help. We worked to get uh, members of Congress aware of the risks so a gender-neutral law was passed Congress that required reporting to the skipper of assault on board a vessel, and that was incorporated into the Coast Guard report to Congress. So that was a was pretty serious work at that time, and women were starting to go into the maritime academies and coming out as officers. And so I think now it's pretty well accepted that women in non-traditional work, you know, are a valued part of a workforce. Our organization also talked about the need to not uh, expect your emotional needs to be met in the work environment, to have the support network away from the marine environment, to take books and journals and musical instruments and so that you're not hanging around conversations that did deteriorate. You know, it's just a lot of advice that we were passing on to younger women, which, women, which we learned ourselves through our own experiences. So I felt pretty good about that. And I know now the younger women with social media are staying in touch with each other and creating an atmosphere where they can 
they can share information about the boats that are safe, the the environments that they, they feel comfortable in. And so it's been a sea change. Well, you should be really proud of that work. I, I, I know that it, it certainly has made a lasting impact on the industry. Um, and, and a lot of people are safer because of, because of your work. So thank you. And it doesn't hurt to have some skippers out there. As women became skippers and were seen as pretty uh, capable, there's just a lot more women who are coming into the maritime industry, and I always recommend that they get as skilled as possible so that they really can be uh, valuable and uh, not just be considered a warm body on a boat. Well, let's switch gears for a second and, and go to what may be the kind of elephant in the room uh, in this conversation about your beautiful home. Um, you know, Bristol Bay is one of the most beautiful places on earth. Uh, and frankly, it's been one of the most resilient, resilient places on earth too. It's withstood a number of incredible shocks to its system and, and people have modified behavior and it's continued to, re- to recover and, and be incredibly productive and a, and a beautiful place. But faces a threat at a level that, uh, <clears throat> many haven't seen before, um, and I know you're active on the issue of Pebble Mine. Will you give our uh, our listeners a little flavor for why you're so concerned and involved in this issue? Well, Bristol Bay, being in western Alaska above the Aleutians, doesn't have a lot of industrial impacts. The fish return, as they returned probably throughout all oceans to healthy habitat. So we're seeing here the last great gift of wild salmon on the planet. It has supported the native population there for millennia. The commercial fisheries began about 130 years ago in Bristol Bay. And over decades, approximately a million and more fish were taken out, largely canned. Now we have, I think it's about 1,800 licenses. It's a limited entry fisheries, and so the licenses are sold or passed on to families. About 1,530 of those are actively fished. Others, like me, you know, quit the fisheries, passed on the licenses. So there's about 1,000 set nets. So we have the drift boats, and then we have set nets, set nets from shore. And so in both, there's a lot of family uh, members participating. So it's essential to the culture and the economy of the vast part of Western Alaska. Those licenses, though, are also held by people who live outside of Alaska. And in fact, in looking at some data, 41 states, the lower 48, have license holders that go to Alaska in Bristol Bay to fish. And each takes crew, two or three people on a boat. So it's a huge engine, an economic engine to the region, and it has proven to be extremely valuable. Well, at the same time, there has been discovery of valuable minerals. And my father was a gold miner when he first came from Alaska. He went to the University of Alaska School of Mines. He prospected and established a gold mine in the in that western Alaska region. So we knew a little bit about um, the value of gold. Actually, I never heard him say that he regretted not being a gold miner once we were involved in fishing. It was like the pride of being involved in a sustainable harvest of a renewable resource, you know, and 
but but uh, our history is that he was a gold miner. We have old 16 millimeter films of this. So foreign corporations, though multinational corporations, have been staking claims. So Rio Tinto, uh, Anglo American, Mitsubishi. Now it's down to just one, though. It's uh, Northern Dynasty, a Canadian company, which has got an American subsidiary. Uh, and so uh, Pebble Limited Partnership. So they now are, are trying to establish a mine in that region for gold, copper, and molybdenum. And over a decade, there has been so much resistance and so much pressure for appropriate environmental assessments that in 2014, the EPA decided there was just too much risk from doing open pit mining, particularly the biggest open pit mine in North America, particularly in a seismically active region where there's at least five earthquakes a year that are five magnitude, some up to eight. And then the, we had the huge one in 1964. It was over nine uh, in which 131 people died, including the father of one of my friends. So, you know, we're aware that this is a, an active earthquake region. And so to consider putting the deepest open pit mine a mile deep, they keep changing the scale of this, talking about it only being a 20-year mine, then saying to investors it could be a 100-year mine, talking about it only being a mile deep with dams only a mile long. In other data, it's like four and a half mile long earthen dams between the two biggest river systems of the region that have produced Last year, 58% of the world's sockeye came from Bristol Bay. And so to use toxic chemicals to extract these hard rock uh, ores and minerals for export or for modern manufacturing, of course, and jewelry, uh, but it is uh, destined for failure. We see, we've seen enough failure of dams as particularly here on the West Coast, Mount Polly or a dam in the British Columbia just failed. And so at the same time, we're facing destruction, economic destruction of fisheries through competition from farm fish. We're seeing the actual destruction of the wild fish through potentially the toxins, that will be released because you cannot hold them back in perpetuity. And that's what the miners are trying to tell us that they can do, that they will put big tailing ponds and nothing will ever escape into these river systems and into the tributaries and into the little streams. And so it's a, it's a potential disaster in a region that we should be protecting because of its huge intrinsic value, it's ecological value, it's home to the people who've lived there who are totally opposed to this. 80% of the Alaskans are opposed to this. 31 of the tribes are opposed to it. The Economic Development Corporation is opposed to it. And so we have to honor that. I would just add to, to your point about <clears throat> The extraction materials, as I understand it, on the list of chemicals that would be used would be arsenic and cyanide. Yes. Um, which kind of 
gives you a sense of the kind of dangerous materials that you're playing with in such an environmentally sensitive area. So the one good news is that uh, Jared Huffman, chair of the House Subcommittee, Water, Oceans, and Wildlife, just led a movement in the House to pass an amendment to H.R. 2740, which would prohibit the U.S. Army Corps from rushing towards finalizing that environmental impact statement for Pebble. And so we need the Senate to pass this. We need to slow this down, and hopefully there'll be a national election that will really slow it down again. Um, President Obama did go to the Bristol Bay area. He became aware of the value of fish to the culture and economy. And so uh, right now, it's a real crucial time for people to get involved and to ask their members of Congress to ask the members of the Senate to also slow this process down. If you were, so I, I get the point about trying to slow down the, the legislative wheels. Is there a pressure point in, in dealing with the corporation behind the development of Pebble Mine outside of a legislative response that you think might cause them to rethink this? Is there... Have you, have you or other activists who are involved in this had ne- any sort of direct negotiations with the corporation involved? I don't know how direct we could be, but this Northern Dynasty apparently has never developed a mine before. So the big corporations that are engaged in mining worldwide with some disasters, they've pulled out. So maybe maybe working to educate the media so that they can do the research on this and say, why would we allow foreign corporation that's never had a mine of this scale before, why would we allow them to come into our country and and do something that has such likely disastrous effects? But we've done enough boycotts at various times, um, picketing, uh, you know, trying to call attention to bad practices. I don't know if that would work with this corporation. So at this point, I would really say that just slowing the process down until the EPA has different uh, directorship and uh, goes back to protecting the environment through the necessary regulations that we've that have been put in place simply so we wouldn't have something like this happen. Well, here's hoping. Here's hoping that that effort is successful because I, I know that a lot of folks in the environmental community look at this and understand that it's it's an existential threat um, to one of, like you said, one of the last uh, amazing, beautiful resources and productive resources in our country and in the world. Um, and if there, something catastrophic happens there, undoing it would be would be probably millennia. Um, well, I am conscious of time. Uh, I, I do want to give you an opportunity to tell me about something that I didn't ask you about. Is there something that you would wish that I had asked you about uh, that you're working on or that you want our listeners to know about uh, or to take action on? Well, um, I think maybe we've covered a lot, but at the same time, I value some of the organizations that are really working for uh, disclosure of of things that the public really should be following. One is the Center for Food Safety and Friends of the Earth 
have uh, formally accused NOAA of uh, violating the Endangered Species Act by giving, by Sea Grant, which is a part of NOAA, giving money to uh, ocean aquaculture operation. That's the kind of thing that uh, is really important, NOAA being two-thirds of the budget of the Department of Commerce, as I understand, uh, you know, is is dispensing a lot of money to to promote things that I'm not so certain the public has agreed upon. Michael Rubino was the head of the Aquaculture Project. He's now become senior advisor for Seafood Strategy and uh, is developing markets for U.S. fisheries products, but also promoting expanded domestic aquaculture. And he comes from that industry. So this is really worrisome to me that we have people in policymaking decisions dispensing our tax dollars to promote industrial activities that are are harming our environment. So it just falls upon people to, to be aware, even in their own region, um, because aquaculture is expanding many places. And we have here the shellfish industry uh, growing oysters and gooey duck, and mostly for export. And beaches are being bulldozed. Native animals like the burrowing shrimp are being treated with pesticides. And there's a great public relations campaign to get the use of hematocloprid. Uh, uh, used to be carbaryl that was used on these uh, beds. Well, this is harmful to our other native species, like the Dungeness crab. But their justification is that, you know, this is uh, oysters are an important export item, and the gooey duck largely goes to Asia and is used for sushi. Uh, but this is uh, worrisome to me because other parts of the country do not allow the pesticides and these chemicals on their oysters and their aquaculture product. So it's just a matter of everybody getting involved regionally and locally in their own issues and and sharing the information as they can. The national issues would be labeling of genetically engineered salmon and be even more assessment of risks, uh, health risks as well as uh, environmental risks. Uh, that's a lot, and it's uh, the the wide-ranging portfolio of work that you're focused on uh, is is pretty incredible. Um, and I know um, you've made a tremendous difference um, in our seafood system uh, well outside of Alaska, and I thank you for your lifetime worth of work. Um, I know our listeners have really enjoyed uh, hearing your story and hearing about all of the pressing issues that you're working on right now. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to visit with us today, Anne. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Well, everyone, you've been listening uh, to another episode of the Catch Curve podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, we had Anne Mosnes with us today. Uh, and uh, again, we thank her for her time. And we will see all of you again soon on another episode of the Catch Curve.